Hi everyone, I'm your host Pietro Ferracini and you're listening to The Italianpreneur. My show is all about learning from mistakes and on it you'll hear a 20-minute interview with a young entrepreneur and you should listen if you're incredibly busy but still eager to learn. Please welcome Job Rosenberg. Mr. Rosenberg is a former Israeli intelligence colonel defined by many as a highly motivated leader with both technical skills and large-scale managerial experience. In 2015, he co-founded Ment.io, a platform for trusted decision-making based on a unique AI algorithm. Unexpectedly, his background is originally in physics and mathematics, with an appetite for philosophy and epistemology. I don't know about you, but I'm beyond excited to announce the first special edition interview on this podcast with an extraordinary entrepreneur. Job Rosenberg. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for the time. Where does this podcast find you? I'm right now in Tel Aviv after coming back from the Netherlands. So I usually start my podcast by asking um, a little bit of a personal question to my guest to help our audience understand better who you are. So what kind of student were you back in high school? Were you the best student, the average kid? or the one that does enough to pass? I think I was over the average. I don't think I was the best. Uh, I kind of enjoyed most of my time in school. I moved in between several, but uh, at the end I tend to like it. Played a little bit of soccer, but wasn't a great sportsman. So it was more about the abstract sciences and readings. Okay, okay. So you were one of the smart kids in school. That's, that's very interesting. <laughs> uh, that's why I probably stick around so much and got into uh, very different fields. Yeah, I try to say that I'm a curious person. Okay, well, we have, we have a point in common right there because um, I also define myself as very curious. Uh, and, but my curiosity is very spread around things, so it doesn't really matter what it is. I'm just interested about everything pretty much. To know my that. father didn't like this tendency of mine to not stick to a certain interest for very long. Oh, really? And how did you cope with that? I just moved from <laughs> He didn't like it, but that's what I've done. I'm still doing it to some extent. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Well, it seems like it worked out for you perfectly, even though your father didn't agree with uh, your changes of directions. <laughs> I'm happy. Oh, fantastic. Well, that's the most important. So I have new question to introduce to you. I would like to ask you to pitch your startup, Ment.io, to me, just like you would do in front of an investor. And I'm pretty sure you have done that before because I heard that you had investments from Slack, from Microsoft. So that shouldn't be a challenge for you. Yeah, well, uh, the basic pitch, I don't know how long you want it to be. I assume not for the next 45 minutes. The basic speech is that our vision is to allow a different way for humans to discuss over the internet. And instead of the usual cacophony of voices, we want to use algorithms to follow and analyze human discussions and allow people to accelerate the way they think together in collaboration. Okay, very interesting. And how do you do that? We thought really hard initially <laughs> how to do that. Uh, we had some experience from my background with the government, 
on what can work and what cannot work in terms of technology. So we knew a little bit about what natural language processing can do and especially what it cannot do. Uh, and we decided to just build a next generation discussion board that is a little bit more structured than the usual one. And therefore the algorithms will be able to follow better what's happening and then analyze the metadata to decide what's the best answer or what's the most interesting debate in a certain discussion and point the attentions of the participants to it. Okay, fantastic. And what, what are the most interesting use cases for your product? Who, who are the users? Yeah, we have two, essentially. One is an enterprise software, especially for big groups of people that need to take decisions together in a very inclusive way. So you can think of a product manager in a tech company who wants to listen at scale to, I don't know, hundreds of employees from sales, from marketing, from R&D, and somehow understand the collective mind, so to speak. And the other one, since COVID especially, is with universities and students. So professors who want to augment the Zoom call with something that is more engaging for the students to debate together topics that has to do with what they learned in the classroom. You had the personal experience of that. Okay, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it's important to mention that I was actually testing your product uh, thanks to my professor, uh, Andrew Patterson, that got uh, us in contact. And we had a great experience using this platform that for the people that are not very techy, is very simple, a board where you can post a big question and uh, all the people can try to give answer to this question or propose more questions to it to go deeper. And then you can comment on every other response and add your data, your point of views, your opinions, and your fellow classmates can comment on that, upvote, give uh, you know comments to that, and really engage in a rich conversation. That's something that you wouldn't really find uh, anywhere else on the web, I would say. Yeah, so we achieved what we wanted with the help of uh, the amazing Professor Patterson. <laughs> I'm sure he's going to be enjoying this, uh, this talk <laughs> when we're going to share with him. So I have the feeling that man.io differentiation is built around artificial intelligence and the unique algorithm. So how does its core one answer to make it more reliable than other platforms uh, such as Reddit and Quora? What is the differentiating factor in the algorithm? Yeah, so Reddit and Quora usually, if at all, if they rank the different alternative answers to a certain question, they do that based on upvotes mostly. Um, and we thought that is like too shallow. We wanted to go deeper. So we built into the discussion after the layer of the questions and alternative answers, a real debate, like anyone who participated ever in a, debate club in Cambridge or Oxford or elsewhere. Uh, they know how it works. And it's quite straightforward in terms of the usage, but then we are able to run uh, algorithms behind the scenes. The first and most basic element of the algorithm is called the Bayesian algorithm, which is actually looking at the different views and the depth of the different arguments, and then try to decide the reliability of an answer based on something that is called the Bayes uh, equation or formula. And mostly people use it in a different way on raw data. We actually apply the same algorithm to a community of knowers and how they relate to one another 
and what kind of arguments and counter-arguments they present in the course of a certain discussion. Okay, very interesting. But how can the algorithm know what is relevant and what is not? Yeah, so the, the little magic here is that we're not looking into the content of what people are saying. We're looking into the syntax or the metadata of the discussion. So AI in general, you could say, is about pattern recognition. So some people do visual imaging and they look into colorful patterns yeah. in different images. Some people do pattern recognition on raw data in an Excel sheet or something to see correlations. We do pattern recognition on the flow of arguments and counter arguments. So we look at the way the discussion is developing along the time. We look at the diversity of the participants. We look at the correlations between different groups or different individuals and how they relate to one another. And therefore we are able to say something about the reliability or the collective mind, as I mentioned earlier, uh, which is more of a weighted score and not the usual average of upvotes and downvotes. And would, would, for example, your platform and the algorithm itself benefit from knowing more about its users? Or is there a reason yeah. why you don't want to know more? Well, we could benefit from that. And on our, you know, in the future and on our vision, we want to do more. We want to open more public groups so we will know how people behave in different contexts and not only in the workplace or in the university, but elsewhere. And we can. Uh, monitor, let's say, with their consent, of course, and their behavior in the course of different discussions on different topics. So we can both follow the expertise of a certain participant on a certain topic and see the general cognitive and psychological characteristics of a certain person. Uh, so, for example, as we know from COVID, you know, this is a very good example, but now I used to give examples from the intelligence work, but now COVID okay. makes it so much easier. You know, we have so much data about people being sick and uh, all of the uh, things that we all know in the last year. Yeah. And there's still a valid question. Whom do you listen to? Of course, we want to listen to experts, but even the experts have some debates. So how do you decide who's right and who's wrong? And the answer is that it has to do with the community of experts and it has to do with the community around them. Um, so we could do that. We could look for who's a very contrarian person, for example, mm -hmm. who's part of a group think because they always raise the same argument to support one another, uh, who's able to raise counter arguments and why and when. So the data that we have by now is very, very rich and deep, much more than you'll find on Microsoft Teams or Slack or Reddit. Um, so imagine if Reddit, if all of this story of GameStop was run on our platform, uh -huh. you could see many more signals of what's happening there and how the group is, is collaborating together and getting to a conclusion. Oh, wow. Okay. So you kind of could see the behind the scene on how the community would interact and then make decisions, like such as yeah. buying a GameStop at all at once and skyrocketing yeah. the price. I think you would have seen the signals before you see them on the stock market, right? You will see that there, there's a consensus being built oh, and, wow. and therefore you will be able to predict what's, what's going to happen with a certain probability. And this just reminds me and brings me to something that it's a bit dark. Like what if government agency or a government that wants to suppress its people has access to 
such a software that can understand what people are doing, whether they're talking about and how they're interacting with each other and can pre prevent their action. What about this scenario? Well, look, uh, any software can be used uh, in different ways. Like, you know, you can take something like this uh, cello bow that I have here and you okay. can kill someone with it, right? You can stick it in the eye of someone or something horrible of that sort. I think our, our machine is, generally speaking, is just a logical machine that collects different views and makes sure that it's designed to expose you to different views rather than just to the same views that you know from your family and friends okay. and culture. Okay. So it's based on general Socratic logical ideas. And if you're open to a diverse view of people, I think in general, you could say that you will end up doing better. Um, okay. I think even when you speak about big groups of analysts, either in the government or in the financial world, it's mostly about these thousands of analysts thinking together. It's not about monitoring someone else. Okay. Just for them point. to be able to communicate. You know, when you do have 600 people trying to think together, it's rather difficult to do that on a chat room. Yeah, it is, it is, it is, absolutely. And this is what Mant is really great about, just putting everything together in an order way, order fashion where everyone can interact. But yeah. it also seems that this could have a, an effect on disinformation and kind of help, you know, seal that craziness that is going out there in the internet where experts can get together in forums and really discuss about the real important topics and, of course, disagree but at the same time you get sort of a good scientific solution out of their discussion yeah so that takes us back to philosophy and science and what science is all about and you know science is coming from knowledge right it's just like how do you develop a reliable knowledge and it has two elements to it one is you know going to the lab and measuring things which now we call data or big data we have a lot of sensors around the world that we can measure things. Uh, but the other thing, which is sometimes something that people don't realize enough, is the peer review, right? The ability to present your findings and your thoughts and your theories to others and hear what they think about it and develop it together. So I think MENT has to do with the second element. And it has to do with any community that wants to think together and we are very, very careful in what we do. We do not believe that machines, AI, will replace human beings anytime soon. We think AI should be used to just facilitate and accelerate human thinking, as I said at the outset. Um, so it's not like something which you find on science fiction, you know, the yeah. robots that uh, uprise again, again, rise up against the against humanity or something. Yeah, I don't believe in kind of it. Yeah. I don't believe in that. I, but I do think that what the internet created for us in the last 30 years is a, an amazing virtual room. Like we can speak now, you speaking from France and I'm speaking from Israel. That's amazing. But we didn't put any measures into the internet of what is right and what is wrong. Initially, we thought, oh, that's great. It's freedom of speech. Uh, but I think everybody understood from, I don't know, 2015 that post-truth and other things are creating really horrible situations.
for humanity if we will not be able to say something about reliability of a, of you know a certain voice on the internet clearly clearly and i mean social media are now exploiting that and uh, to their favor you know they want to engage with people they want to have them active on their platforms and uh, rage and disagreement is what they feed off so it's just terrible exactly. machine was designed to just get you on the phone as often as possible for as long as possible. So it gives you a lot of uh, gratification from your friends and family with likes and likes and likes. And it presents to you all kind of conspirations that just drive a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, people conversation that mm -hmm. brings on ads and everything else. We want to design for something else. We want to design for deeper discussions and for reliability. Yeah, and critical thinking and peer review, you mentioned, are very important. And I think it's something that a lot of people that haven't studied at university or they just seem to be blind to it, don't, don't see it. They don't see that, you know, a scientific research is nothing until it's been done again and again by other people around the world and reviewed and passed through the scan of other scientists because one person cannot hold in their hands the truth. Yeah, I agree. There's never one person, you know, if, if you're asking about, about two plus two equals four, yeah, that, I think all of us have that. But in the more important issues, uh, whether it's in the business world of how do you prioritize what's happening in your company in the next year, why are you losing customers or even in politics, there is no one truth that one person holds. But if we want to have a rational conversation, we need to build a tool to allow that to happen. And we need to develop the critical thinking abilities of as many citizens and students as we can. And uh, I don't know, I'm quite old by now, um, but you will tell me, you're from the young generation. I get the feeling that the young generation is fed up with post-truth and people are looking by now for something different. We had enough of the shallowness of Instagram and TikTok. That's nice for a while, uh, but people understand the price that we're paying as yes. a society yes i mean i'm personally very tired of that uh i don't know if everyone my age thinks things like this because especially newer generation even younger than me i think about my brother that is 17 years old he's growing up with social media to him that's the new norm right the new way of socializing the new way of sharing mm -hmm. your experience and that's going to be hard to eradicate or to change towards something more positive no, I don't think we have to cancel it all. People can enjoy themselves with movies and playing and dancing. That's good. But side by side, we need to find something that is a bit different and is designed for something which is a different idea. You know, Facebook started from socializing and then suddenly they had 2 billion people and they started discussing politics and started to dis discussing religion. Uh, and it was just not designed for it. So it's not, it's not a wonder that it didn't work. Yeah, absolutely. It started as a dating platform for colleges. So look at yeah. where, where it went now. It's just crazy, crazy. So let's change a little bit topic and let's talk about what is the single biggest fuck up in your startup adventure? Can you recall something? Yeah, many, too many. Um, I think I can choose two that I think may help others who want to start this very long uh, and difficult journey. So first of all, uh, I retired from the government and 
really soon after I started the company, which means that I had very little experience in business. And I just thought, you know, I know how big groups of analysts are trying to solve difficult problems together. I have my own experience. I used certain softwares. I have a technical background. Uh, and I think I really missed a lot on the business side of it. You know, the pricing, the marketing. I came from a very technological point of view and the invention of what I explained to you about the algorithms earlier on. Um, but the business world, as everybody knows, is about money. It and is. investors want to make money and you need to sell. Um, so I think initially I didn't understand that we need to create a SaaS platform because it makes much more sense in terms of the business. We started by trying to sell to really big organizations, so big financial institutions in the US who always ask to install the software on their premises because they don't count on the cloud. And that became extremely a very difficult, complex project that is much uh, too difficult for a young startup. So if okay. you're a young startup, start for a very simple thing. And it took us like two years to pivot into the SaaS platform that you can find now. Yeah, and so the that, SaaS platform one. is services as software for those that don't know. Yeah, so you can just go to Ment.io on the internet and start using the software. And we don't need to have a very long negotiation about your network and how does it work and how do we change the software for each and every client. Um, so now I'm, I'm a big fan of SaaS and I don't see any startup starting to do other things as a, as a clever thing. Uh, the other thing is, of course, um, about human relations and empathy and going through this journey, especially amongst the founders. So you really need to find the co-founders uh, who you know very well, because there will be a lot of hardship. And I will always recommend to, whenever you feel like things are breaking down between you, uh, try and take a weekend. Don't take decisions before the weekend ends. Try to sleep on it and relax. And then many of the rows that you have with your co-founders may end up with nothing, just going back to work. But in the heat of the conversation, uh, you should not take decisions. This is a big mistake. Uh, and there's a lot of pressure in, in certain points of this journey. Yeah, because sometimes um, I have little experience compared to you in startups, but when I was working together with my best friends and uh, importing wine from the Netherlands and then uh, from Italy, sorry, and selling it to the Netherlands, we had difficult moments where like the shipment was not arriving, the, you know, the, our economics were not right. And we, we thought we were going to lose money. And there is a lot of tension building up and you're working side by side with those people that if you want or not, they become your best friend because you see them every day and you have discussions that sometimes end up in argument that are not, you know, bringing you anywhere, just anger and frustration that is building up. And exactly. yes, taking decision in that point of time, it's just not very smart. You need to sleep on it, as you said, take the weekend off, relax a little bit if possible, and then come the Monday after and just approach things with a new, new mind, new mindset. Yeah. And I think many of the failures of startups, even though they don't report it in that way, has to do with the relationship between the founders. 100%. I recall uh, being on a startup trip 
in the Northern Europe uh, in Prague and talking with several investors. And um, we were asking them, okay, what are the factors that you look in when you want to invest into a startup? And they told me, first of all, that the idea, it's not the first thing they look at. Actually, it's the last. The first thing they look at is the team and how well they work together. What is the energy between them? How is, how, who are the co-founders? Do they uh, complement each other? And do they, are mm -hmm. they able to work together in hard times? Did they manage to pass through some difficult points in their startup adventure or not? And that really opened my mind and I was like, oh, wow, yeah, this, this is true. Like an idea could be amazing. You know, if we, oh, I want to go to the moon to you know, bring back uh, expensive materials that I can sell here on earth, but without the execution of it, it's just useless. It's just another idea. Yeah, the, the idea is overemphasized and overappreciated. The journey is so long and you find it with beginners many times. They keep some secrecy around the idea because they're afraid someone will steal it. People don't understand how long the journey is. And, you know, it's not like you speak to someone and they jump off the chair and run to do the same thing. People are busy with their own dreams. So share as much as you can. It's not, it's not about keeping it secret. At the end point, you know, you will release the software and people will see it. And if you don't have a differentiator, people will copy it. And sometimes it's good to have competition. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is really, really something that everyone listening should note down, that share your ideas, share your project. That's how you find your co-founders. That's how you find people to support you. No one is yeah, going to even a, People should understand, even from the perspective of the investors, the VCs, if they see something that there is a competition in the market for, and you will always have a different angle if you build it separately, uh, it's encouraging them to invest. If you come and you say, I'm the only one in the world who's doing that, they will ask themselves, why is that? Because maybe there's no market need for what you're doing because you're the only one. If it's such a great idea, someone should have thought of something at least similar to what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. 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 Very interesting uh, job. Now, I want to bring you back a little bit into algorithms and actually want to talk about the importance of ethics and building algorithms and artificial intelligence. But yeah. before that, I want to let our audience know that you have a background in epistemology. And for those one who don't know, epistemology is the philosophical study of nature, origin, and the limits of human knowledge. I'm quoting uh, Wikipedia here. The term <laughs> is derived from the Greek uh, episteme, knowledge, and logos, reason, accordingly. The field is sometimes referred as the theory of knowledge. And I want to see how you actually use epistemology in your critical thinking when you design such algorithms and plan for artificial intelligence to go. Well, you know, if people are trying to speak about artificial intelligence, they should know something about human intelligence. You know, if you're trying to imitate that you know, or at least pretending to be able to copy it, uh, you need to think about intelligence and what is human intelligence. And human intelligence is mostly about knowledge. I'm not talking about emotional intelligence here. And people had thought really deeply about what knowledge is from the early Greek philosophy till the very day in modern philosophy today. And uh, Bertrand Russell is uh, famous to be saying that philosophy is the profession of questions that don't have answers. As soon as you do have answers, it moves to another profession like medicine or something. 
so people are thinking about that and there's no straightforward solution to the question, but there's a lot um, of smart things that people had said about this. And I sometimes find that many in the computer sciences really build the, uh, the story of AI, didn't really think deeply about what does it mean to have an intelligence. Uh, AI basically, and I'm not trying to insult anyone, it's a, it's a very advanced science, but basically it's about statistics and advanced statistics. And the, the fact of the matter is that in the last decade or so, we are able to store and measure many, many things without any limitations. This is what they usually refer to as big data. And as soon as you have big data, you can do very interesting things with statistics. Okay? If you have only 10 samples, you can't do much with statistics when you have billions and billions uh, of data points, then you can apply statistics. But the truth of the matter is that we humans do not understand things via statistics. There's a lot of research, psychological research, to show that our mind is not built very well for statistics. People make many mistakes about statistics. Um, by now, people know a lot about uh, uh, Kahneman and Tversky, Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winner in economics. He was doing a lot of experiments in psychology to show that people intuitions are very bad with the probabilities. Uh, we humans understand each other and convince each other through a different mechanism, which has to do with arguments and counter arguments. And that is what we try to emulate in our software. And it's a very, very different process. You know, like a, a small child, um, let's say in, in visual recognition, which is the best, most advanced AI algorithms, yeah. you know, the things that you have on your Tesla and uh, on other places, or everybody is playing with on TikTok. Um, this is based on statistics. And when you teach the computer uh, how to recognize and separate a picture of a dog from a picture of a cat, it's usually via many, many pictures of dogs and cats. And I think children, human children, don't study what a cat is in this way. They study it in a different way. Uh, they study it from the parents, they study other things from the teachers, and then from peers and from uh, experts. Uh, and this process is not the process that is currently at least on the mainstream, it's not the main process that AI is built around. Uh, one of the biggest critics of this fact, so it's not only me saying that, of course, uh, is Professor Pearl from UCLA. He wrote a book that is called The Book of Why. He's a computer scientist and a winner of the Turing Prize. Uh, and he says, you know, until we teach computers to understand causality, uh, what is correlations... Causality? Causality is just what, the, what are the reasons for things to happen, the laws of nature or things like that. Correlation, statistical correlation is just not enough. It's nice, but it's not, it's not the end of the story. Okay. Oh, very, very interesting view on artificial intelligence. Thank you for sharing that. And you touched upon visual recognition of images, and that brought to my mind an artificial intelligence software called the Deep AI. Are you, are you familiar with that? Yeah. Well, which goes, in my opinion, against what certain uh, ethical pillars. And because for, for the people that don't know about it, it's a software that now it's also used by certain governments, agency that 
collects pictures of suspect and uh, looks mm-hmm. for similar pictures all around the internet, diving deep into social media profile and any information that is publicly available on the internet, even in posts where you're just being tagged, doesn't mean that you, you know, put that post yourself on the internet. And that way it gives law enforcement, for example, access to things that they wouldn't have access otherwise. Mm-hmm. And I would like to know your opinion on this. I would love to think that uh, the technology companies uh, will be responsible and adopt a lot of ethical principles. And it may happen. But at the end of the day, ethics is not up to the technology companies and even not to business companies. Uh, ethics is being decided, at least in democracies, you know, amongst the voters and amongst the civil servants. And it should be in the law. Now, okay. the problem is the governments are working much uh, uh, slower than high-tech companies. So you will always see the software is far ahead of what the regulators are able to do because they need to deliberate and get the voters to agree on certain things. But again, it may end up being a little bit late, but I don't think it's too late. I think the regulator should take it into their hands and based on the general principles of democracy, decide on the ethical laws that apply to AI. You know, it's, it's not very different from other uh, tools that, as I said before, you know, you can use them for the benefit of humanity, but you can also use them uh, for real damage and uh, horrible things. So, you know, in the 1940s and 50s, it was about nuclear power. Yeah. You could use nuclear power for clean energy and you can use it for nuclear weapons. And it's up for the governments and the international law and the United Nations to decide on the rules that apply. Uh, I personally, even though I'm an entrepreneur, uh, I would want the governments to define the rules. Uh, I'm not uh, a libertarian who think, you know, give us freedom and somehow everything will end up to the better. Yeah, and there's someone else that is pretty famous that I think would agree with your quote, which is Elon Musk, that himself said that he would like to see regulation on artificial intelligence. That's something that is scary for him. So you agree with, with his point of view? Yeah, well, we were lucky to get an investment from Peter Thiel, who was his co-founder of PayPal. So they, they both of them, I think, think alike. And Peter also wrote a lot about AI being, you know, a sensitive technology that government should control in some ways. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The only problem I see there that you already talked about is the fact that regulators cannot cope with the speed of technology and often don't even understand it to to its fullest, right? We that work or like the technology environment are passionate about the research, read stuff. They have other things to think about. Um, and often cannot really grasp, grasp the, the concept and then build rules about that. Yeah, I, I would suggest uh, everyone to go and look at the performance of Mark Zuckerberg in front of the Congress. That was a very, very telling story uh, in, to both sides. You know, On the one hand, Mark Zuckerberg is saying, I don't want to be the one who decides truth from falsehood. Uh, He also says, I cannot do that currently in terms of the technology. 
but you could also see the other side of the old congressmen and women who don't understand the technology so much. And some of them really ask some ridiculous questions. Um, so yeah, we just need more young people in the government, you know, understand what tech is. Yeah, yeah. I'm waiting for the next wave of uh, young people to take over and really change things around. Let's really hope that's going to be the case. Now, I'm waiting to see you in the EU parliament. Or something. <laughs> well, we'll see about that. Um, so I'm also going to try a new question with you, uh, Job. What, what are you currently struggling with? What is stopping you from going forward in terms of business life or personal life? It's up to you to decide. Mm. Well, the personal life is more difficult. Uh, in terms of business life, uh, I think we just need to grow the revenue of the company. Um, so it took us a long time to get to the point of product market fit, because what we do, I think, is quite unusual and difficult. And also there's an element of it uh, that is counter-cultural to some extent, as I explained before. And now we just need to grow very fast. And, you know, the pressure on startups always gets higher and higher. Uh, I remember when I once went to Silicon Valley with a group of friends and an investor told us the C round is the most difficult for startups. And we were all after the seed round. And we said, really? Like that? we thought the seed round was the most difficult. <laughs> but from now on, it's going to be easy. And he said, no, it's the opposite. And he was right. So now people are measuring us. You know, at the, at the beginning, you sell your dreams and I have a big dream. Um, so... Uh, now you're being measured by business standards. Of course, uh, startups on our stage are still not uh, profitable, but people are looking at the uh, pace of growth that you're having. So you need to sell more and more for more and more money and convince the investors that because we're still relying on investors' money, uh, you need to convince them that you're going to be very big very soon. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. enough to say, you know, we're doing something very important for human culture or for a different aspect of AI. Uh, you need to show the money. Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, that's the, the really base of economics and fi financing that people want the return on investment. The shareholders, they want to get their money back and make a profit out of it. Unfortunately, a lot of startups needs to cope with that and uh, you as a CEO have a tough job managing the expectation of the shareholders and the potential growth of the company and your vision. So good luck with that. <laughs> it's not an easy task, I'm sure. And is there something... I recommend product manager as, a, as your first walk uh, on high tech before you go to become a CEO. Okay, how so? Product is uh, more internally looking to the customers and the internal coordination of the company and only then put the burden of the investors on your head. So start somewhere where you can adopt and then go for the maximum pressure. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Interesting advice there. And talking about advices, what is the one piece of advice that you give to a young person uh, with the dream of building his own company today? Be patient. Again, I, I, I know that some, like Mark Zuckerberg, but many others, had built a company at a very young age. 
but I think research shows that the best entrepreneurs are over 40. Um, and you learn a lot. So don't rush to become an entrepreneur because there are many stories of people who rushed and didn't succeed. And it's okay to fail, but maybe it's better to learn under someone who's more experienced and learn from other CEOs and then start your own company. Um, but, you know, I started late, so maybe some people have a, a higher ambitions than myself and uh, are more under pressure to show that they are building their own company and I'm all in favor. You know, this is like the free world and you can do what you like and how you feel about starting your own business. Well, Job, thank you for sharing your inspiring story with me today and this special format. I don't even want to say good luck to you and man.io because I strongly believe what you and your team are doing is going to impact millions of people. So just keep up your vision and keep up holding dear to you your entrepreneurial values that seems to shape your company in an amazing way. And I'm really looking forward to talk to you soon. Thank you very much for your time and Thanks for the listeners who are listening to our conversation. I yes. really enjoyed it. If that sounds interesting to you, make sure to stick around for the next episode. Support the show by subscribing to the podcast and by sharing what you learned today with someone dear to you. Feel free to connect by following the links in the description of this episode. And don't waste your time. Instead, invest it by learning something new every single day. And for those that are interested in being a part of a valuable entrepreneurial community, check out Mustard Entrepreneurs. They offer webinars, competitions, get-togethers and workshops to bring entrepreneurship closer to their fellow students. Being an entrepreneur is about being bold and creative and also a risk-taker. If this sounds like something you want to be a part of, check out Mustard Entrepreneurs on their Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn.